Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. Hello, everybody. This is Sean Mader coming to you from New York City, New York. And it's been a while since we posted a podcast. And in some of the conversations I've been having during this period of time, I've really been looking with some of my friends and colleagues about the new approaches that are going to be required in order for companies to be resilient and innovative during COVID and post-COVID. So the conversation today is really interesting because it gets into the actual strategy behind learning and development inside of larger companies. And I've got a unique guest today, Janice Burns, who used to be the head of learning and development at MasterCard, uh, a role that uh, she was put into because of her outside thinking. And then out of her relationship with the company Degreed, who was really helping them implement a larger learning strategy, she's now uh, a, a key figure at Degreed, really looking at what the future of training and learning is inside of large organizations and how we can really empower companies to be more resilient, more adaptive, more maneuverable. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you have any questions, reach out. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Janice Burns. She's Chief Career Experience Officer at Degreed and First of all, thank you, Janice, for being with us and piping yourself in and doing everything from your home. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yes, of course. And uh, now you and I have had some conversations in the past. Uh, you've got a really interesting background. First, as you're the head of learning and tr- uh, training at MasterCard. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And give me a sense of like, so just to for the, for people who are listening, you went from being in that role on the corporate side to then working with one of your clients, Degreed, yes. which is where yes. you are now. Yes. So I'd love to hear first, just talk to me about where uh, training and development and the strategy around that was back when you were there, what some of the challenges were, and now kind of what the, the world uh, that you guys are creating at Degreed is so that leaders are able to train, develop, and really keep their organizations nimble and evolving. Okay, I'd love to. First of all, I spent most of my career at MasterCard. I spent 27 years of my career at MasterCard, and I had a number of different jobs. Um, I started our diversity function, became the chief diversity officer, ran talent acquisition, was an HR business partner, and was a product manager because I started my career in product management. So I had lots of jobs. Um, But seven and a half years ago, the... Uh, Chief HR officer asked me to take on the role of chief learning officer because he wanted someone to reimagine learning. And he said he didn't want someone who had a learning background because it would take them too long to forget what they knew. He wanted someone to come in who um, would approach it from a different perspective, from a perspective of really how do you help the business execute against their strategy? And um, 
help us to be forward thinking. So that was a great opportunity for me. Um, I'm what's called a positive disruptor. So if you're transforming something or changing it, I'm your girl. Um, if it's status quo, I'm not the right person for it. Uh, when I entered into that role, there were three things I really needed to focus on. One was making sure that our learning curriculum was um, primarily focused on skills that were related to our business strategy. And that was a shift for us from being primarily focused on soft skills. The second thing that um, I needed to focus on was creating a culture of learning where employees understood the value of learning on their own um, and lifelong learning. And also thinking about the digital transformation and where MasterCard was in that journey. And then third was uh, freedom, and which probably sounds very odd, but I remember meeting with our CEO, Ajay Banga, before uh, going into the role. And I said, Ajay, what should I be thinking about going into this new role? And he said, freedom. And I didn't understand it at the time, but I wrote it on my whiteboard. And six months later, I understood where freedom fit into the equation. Um, what did, so, yeah, what did, what did he mean by that? What did you start to see? I don't know what he meant by it, but I can tell you how I interpreted it. I developed a learning philosophy called guided freedom. And what that meant was I believe that all MasterCard employees um, were owed the right to have the freedom to learn what they wanted to, when they wanted to, how they wanted to. But we had an obligation to guide them in learning what they needed to know to perform well in their jobs and to grow in their careers. And if you think about it, it sounds simple and uh, commonsensical, but most corporate learning departments really weren't focused on the freedom side of learning. They just, you know, told you what learning you needed to take and evaluated you on that. And anything else was on your time, your business, your expense. And understanding how people were learning outside of the corporate world, I wanted to bring some of those concepts inside. Mm -hmm. In a situ in a traditional situation like that, the what's it sounds like it's a more prescript prescriptive learning yeah. environment versus encouraging a lot of new thinking and people's in indulging people's passions and so did you find that common for a lot of now that you're dealing with a lot of enterprise clients is that a common feature that you run into? It's becoming common. When I first went down this road, um, probably around end of 2014, 2015, and I would speak at co conferences about this, most of the established CLOs looked at me like I was completely crazy because they didn't understand why we would spend corporate dollars to let our employees learn things that were not directly related to the business. And what I explained to them is when you're in a culture of innovation, which is the culture of MasterCard, everyone needs to contribute to the innovation. And to be innovative, you have to be curious. 
Um, you have to discover things. You have to be able to connect dots that seem disconnected because that's where the magic comes in innovation. And so by letting our employees learn whatever they wanted, and truly they could, if they wanted to learn about wine and it was on our platform, knock yourself out. That wasn't hurting us. That was actually building a muscle that we needed in the organization. Mm. But that concept was very foreign. Um, to many CLOs at the time. And now you hear almost everyone talking about lifelong learning and continuous learning. So um, yeah, again, me being a little bit disruptive within the industry as well. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, for people who are interdisciplinary learners, maybe we take it for granted. And I'm just really fascinated by how you must have dealt with some of that resistance up front. Like, how do you make the business case that somebody you're actually as a CEO you're better off having Nancy learning about being a sommelier <laughs> like <laughs> how, how do you make that connection there and have them get it and, and I imagine there was uh, there's a bit of an uphill battle in the beginning well not really because of the approach that I use so the other thing that AJ was brilliant about was to strongly encourage people, especially leaders, to um, go against the status quo if that was what's going to bring us towards innovation and um, to be resourceful. And so because I knew if I went through the established process, it would take me too long to get off the ground, I found advocates or co conspirators who could work with me. And the two main ones were, um, was the head of the technology group and the head of sales. And they both understood the need for upskilling their organization and giving them more access to different forms of learning. Um, And so they were willing to play with me and we use some of the, you know, both product management kind of um, ways of producing or developing a product. You test and learn and then you iterate and then you scale. We use that kind of methodology as we were developing learning um, solutions for them. And once we saw momentum in the technology group and a little in sales at that time, other groups were naturally curious and they wanted to play. And by that time, I had already rolled everything out um, to the employee base, but I hadn't promoted it. So we did a big promotion called The Next Innovation Is You. um, And we said, We need you to innovate yourself so you can help us innovate the way people uh, pay. And that was a big success because it linked into the culture of innovation. And we just kind of went from there. Yeah. And and from that approach, it sounds like you were really building, you know, top down and bottom up innovation in MasterCard. I was. And actually, I did not present um, the platform that facilitated all of this, which is Degree. Oh, that was me, my next question here. <laughs> yeah. So talk to me about how how Degreed came in, because obviously it had an impact on all this. It did. So I knew that I wanted to execute on this concept of guided freedom. 
And I knew that I wanted to create a platform that I consider to be a learning lounge, a place where people just wanted to hang out and that I could provide um, learning in bite size, but kind of pulled together. And so I remember saying before I ever met Degreed, I kind of think we should build learning like my playlist on my iPod where A, a song isn't longer than like three and a half to four minutes and you have a collection of songs that, you know, take you through a journey. And again, every, my team thought I was crazy when I told them that. But when I met Degreed, they had a platform where you could put any type of content and connect it to that platform where you could curate content and what they called um, a, um, they didn't call it a playlist. They called it, I don't remember right now because my mind is blank, but it's like a playlist. Mm -hmm. And um, they also had a unique setup where you really did want to hang out there. You wanted to go back and your curiosity could be um, satisfied by going back. So the functionality of the platform really intrigued me. What intrigued me more was what they were really trying to do. And that was to democratize learning. Um, so that all employees had the same access to learning, that you didn't get special access to learning based on your title or based on where you sat within the company. And they wanted to also extend this uh, platform commercially outside of um, big institutions. That really resonated with me because I do think that education is the key to economic uh, sustainability. And so I connected to that mission um, and they were in the beginning stages of uh, starting their company so they could be an innovation partner with me. I could help influence their uh, product pipeline. They could help me be more innovative. And so it was a really nice relationship hmm. for the five years that we worked together in that capacity. That's all while you were at MasterCard. That's all while I was yeah. at MasterCard, yes. And yeah. so now... <laughs> <laughs> so now, I um, think at the beginning of last year, I felt a little itchy that it was time for me to do something different in my career. Um, and since I felt like I had done almost all the jobs in HR, that wasn't... Uh, I didn't see anything in HR that was interesting to me. I didn't want to go back into the business, but I was fascinated with careers and um, democratizing learning and how to help people think about careers very differently, how to help people design their own careers. And um, I felt like I would have more impact in bringing that thought leadership, that philosophy, that influence to life outside of MasterCard. I could be a little bit more disruptive than I could be within a corp the corporate walls. Um, so I made my plan to leave. And at that time, I, I didn't have an offer on the table from Degreed. I was planning on doing a few other things. 
and eventually the CEO, um, Chris McCarthy and I connected and he felt like I could help them because they were just about to launch their career mobility product. And um, we created this new role. So again, you know, being disruptive, I created yeah. a new role that's, uh, yeah, that's been really fun. Awesome. And, and give, just so people get a sense, degree, I know Degreed started off as uh, to consumer, correct? And then it went enterprise. So just give people a sense of how Degreed functions inside of an enterprise setting. Sure. And before I, I say that, Pathways is what I wanted to say instead of Playlist. Oh. My degree colleagues are going to be like, how do you not remember Pathways? Okay. <laughs> See if we're going to do a very awkward copy and paste on that. Yeah. Okay. So the way that Degreed operates and how we used it is we put Degreed on the front end of all of our learning, which meant that that was the door you went to one place to get to any learning, whether that learning was on our learning management system, our compliance training, whatever it was. And once you went into that door, you had access to formal learning, but you also had access to articles and podcasts and books and book summaries um, because any content that you either bought. So we had um, uh, relationships with Pluralsight and LinkedIn Learning and Harvard um, Publishing. All of that content you could get access to from this one place, but you could also go to external sources like YouTube or TED Talks to bring in learning. What we could do on the design side is to create pathways to help guide people through um, a certain topic or a certain experience. So as a new employee at MasterCard, your onboarding was in degree and you went through this experience of learning about the culture, the company, the industry, um, and our products, which was really, really wonderful. You could also share learning with other people. You could create learning groups and you could rate your skills. Um, the learning was generated based on the skills that you said you were interested in. And every morning you would get a new uh, suggestion of some piece of learning that related to one of your skills. So you could rate your skills, get the learning on your skills and um, see yourself make progress. Degreed has evolved since then. And uh, not only can you and your manager rate your skills, you can actually use something that we call a skill review and use an AI tool to help rate your skills in a much more objective way and see progress over time. And then once you know what skills you have and where your skill gaps are, you have a skill profile and the platform now will offer up opportunities where you can either build the skills or you can leverage your skills. So an opportunity could be another job or it could be a project or a mentoring um, assignment. Um, it's really up to the company. So, you know, now we kind of have this holistic uh, approach of going from learning to skills to opportunities, which is really how you think about a career, right? Right. And 
doing that over and over again. So again, everything did fit into this fascination I have with democratizing learning and helping people design new careers. Well, and there's another aspect that I was really struck by, which is if I'm a CEO or an executive, what people are doing to further their education up until recently would have just been lost. There's no way to know who was doing what. You didn't know if you had somebody who was just really geeking out on blockchain in your organization and then somebody else who was working on sustainable energy. You would never have been able to capture that. So one of the fascinating parts about Degreed is it gives leadership a snapshot into what people are doing and that if you're an employee, you're learning. All your additional work is not gone to waste. You're building a profile and, and it's showing up and you become available and seen for your additional learnings. Kind of like you're actually carrying an extra extra degree here. A- absolutely. That's degreed. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> should, yeah, it's a pretty smart name they came up with. Um, you know, the other thing from a business side, from my side, as I built out learning agendas each year, it was based on the input that I would get from the business unit or the executives. But as you said, because I could see what people were really interested in learning, what they were searching for, what they were completing, I could find gaps in our own learning strategy and anticipate skills that were on the horizon that maybe hadn't yet come into the Mm -hmm. office and open up opportunities that way. It also provided us with a way to rethink things like tuition reimbursement. Most tuition reimbursement programs are just benefit programs where they reimburse you for a degree. Given the fact that skills were and are changing so rapidly and either certifications are now the key or blocks of knowledge, we were able to start paying and are reimbursing people for their certifications, for completing a MOOC like um, something on Coursera Mm -hmm. and connect those into Degreed as well. Um, So it really became Um, a digitized way of bringing learning to everyone in the organization and letting you kind of chart your own learning path. Yeah. Well, and so the the flip side of this then is that for people who are looking at the strategy that an organization needs in order to create a more innovative company or uh, more adaptable and maneuverable teams, the strategy that they might have been going at this with Pre-COVID probably had a certain complexion, and now I think we're all clear that all of these ideas that we talked about in the future of work or these things that were coming now got smacked up right in front of our faces. So what have you seen in terms of the changes in strategies for organizations compared to how it was pre-COVID, and now how's it changed moving forward? Sure, that's a great question. I can tell you at the beginning of March, I did a presentation with uh, Todd Topper, who's at Degreed. I was not at Degreed yet. And we were talking about the digitalization of learning and why that was important to a bunch of CLOs. And they were very resistant still. 
this was beginning of March, and felt like, you know, learning was really what you did in the classroom. Then COVID hits, and pretty much overnight, everyone has to go digital. And so now you had a lot of people in the learning industry, not only trying to find the technology that they needed to go digital, but train themselves on how to create learning in a digital platform, facilitate it, make it a human experience and get their employees comfortable with it. I will tell you employees became more comfortable than uh, the learning professionals at first because they started to see, oh, people are losing their jobs. Oh, if I wanna keep myself fresh, I'm gonna have to, you know, keep up my skills and learn a new skill. So they started using a lot of those tools and I would say corporations caught up with them. Those who realized that the future of learning was now in the present, um, continued to build out their digital strategy. For those companies who thought that we would be over COVID in two months, Um, they were a little behind because I think we all have realized that the world has changed. Um, Remote work is not just something that is um, an interim way of working. Many companies have decided to cut back on their physical locations and for cost-saving reasons. Um, A lot of employees need to work at home because of school situations or other things. And I know for myself, and this was before COVID, coming to, um, I guess it was after COVID when I joined, I joined in April, coming to degree where I would have been working from home anyway. After working from home, I don't know why anyone would ever want to go into an office and get dressed up every morning and put makeup on. So uh, (laughs) I think you had a lot of employees who really appreciated that. There is a flip side to it. There are people who really miss the social, physical, social interaction. Um, So for those people, you know, going in at least a day or two uh, a week is is necessary, but remote work is here to stay. And therefore, remote learning is here to stay. Well, by the way, it seems to me like without some kind of structure like this, whatever people are doing at home... uh, I know a lot of people have been motivated to suddenly develop new skills, Mm -hmm. not being able to capture that. It must be a lot harder for leadership to stay connected to what's happening in organizations with remote work. So it sounds like degreed kind of is the connective tissue for all of that as well. It is the connected tissue for all of that. And executives are in a very interesting place today because not only are they dealing with the COVID crisis and the economic crisis associated with that, they're also dealing with the social justice crisis. um, And there's a lot of political things that are going on, as you know. And so executives and companies have had to play a role that they never had to play before. One is to be a social safety net for employees with their well-being. But the other is to really demonstrate that the values that they have on their walls are the values that they're willing to live by and take a stance on things like social injustice. Um, Their employees are expecting it. 
They have to prove that um, they mean what they say. And so it's been interesting. I don't, I don't think that a lot of executives were really prepared for that or HR professionals. No, and, and just in kind of a tangible sense, a platform like Degreed, we, obviously there's technical skills and all these things in the core competencies. Then we talk about the areas of soft skills, and, but now there's this other layer. And, and, and how to communicate, how to actually get people on the same page. So how ha, have people been able to use your platform to, to have those conversations and, and communicate some of these things through uh, the chain? That's a great question. A lot of our clients called on us as the, um, the racial social injustice things were occurring uh, here in the States. And asked how could we help them? They didn't have material. We um, created a number of pathways, curated a number of pathways on racism, how to have conversations about race, um, a lot of material to, to help these companies guide their employees on both becoming knowledgeable about the history that kind of led us here, but more importantly, how to have these open conversations. Because as you know, it's a sensitive topic. People are uncomfortable. And having a place that they could go to and privately learn on their own and then maybe test out some things that were offered up with others uh, was very, very helpful. Well, it sounds to me, too, that if people from different positions in a company are having access to some common materials, you actually have an, uh, an opportunity to get people on the same page and in a common conversation and Absolutely. get people on the same page in a way that, I mean, Facebook groups probably don't, uh, <laughs> aren't the most reliable source these days. Yeah, I don't think they are. <laughs> you don't know who's on the other end of the Facebook conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, look, this uh, we're in such a fascinating time where learning and development beforehand might have already been a challenge. The, the skill sets that were coming uh, were going to be needed for the future. They were happening, and whether people were reacting to them or not, was it was, a, it was a mixed bag. So now we're in this crisis management mode. I mean, we have, like you said, crises on so many different fronts. Yeah. And that really puts us into the survival mode. Just yeah. trying to deal with today's problem, the next problem. Yeah. So when you start to talk about uh, or you're talk, advising people on their learning strategies, yeah. what would you say they should be focused on, say, in the next three years? Yeah. I think what they should be focused on today, next year, and the next three years is developing a skills strategy. Um, in 2016, the World Economic forum said, farewell roles, hello skills. And they saw then that skills would be the new currency to trade on in terms of employment, but they were thinking this was going to happen in 2030. Um, last year, I think it was September, they declared that we were in a skills revolution uh, because they were seeing the skill gap widen based on automation and other factors. And they felt like we were going to be in a crisis by 2025. COVID hit. We're in a crisis now. 
Um, and if you think about the way that I think about careers, and this is going to go back to why skills should be your new strategy, a career is really is not about a variety of roles that you've had. It's really a series of a collection of skills and experiences over a lifetime, the lifetime that you choose to stay employed. And it's how you package those skills and it's how many of those skills can be transferred to other experiences that helps you to gain momentum in your career, be agile in your career and move. And so you're seeing also on the company side that as things change so quickly, roles don't mean as much, it's more task and who has the skills to do those tasks or those gigs. And you can only deploy or upskill your, your talent if you know what skills they have. And if you are matching your strategy of the skills you're gonna develop against what your business strategy says that you need, but also helping your employees understand how to build skills that will help them both in their current job and jobs that your company sees as future jobs, but jobs that they can take elsewhere. Because we all know there are lots of employees who will not be in the same job they were in a year from now for a variety of reasons. I think uh, a socially conscious organization, um, and we're seeing this with Walmart and Amazon and some other players, will help upskill or reskill those employees that they know are vulnerable so that they can have um, sustainable employability someplace. And again, that's all about a skills strategy, not necessarily a learning strategy and how we've, how we've thought about it before. Well, and then when we talk about skills, as we point to, there's going to be even a, a lot of automation brought to the, a lot of white-collar, mid-level jobs. Yeah. Akin to what we might have seen in the blue-collar sector over the last 20 or 30 years. Now, people might not know what skills are going to be relevant. And so I know when we have this skills conversation, it's easy to focus on tangible skills, uh, particular software uh, coding skills. How do you guys deal with the softer skills? Yeah. Like, um, ambiguity, being able to be with ambiguity and, and co-creation and these things that are harder to pin down. And where do you see their role in terms of being resilient? Yeah. So I really think about skills as power skills and transactional skills. And power skills are those skills that we may have called soft skills or professional skills, but these are skills that you continue to become more proficient in over time, but they're power skills because they're so transferable, right? Um, we're seeing now and what the futurists say for tomorrow is the more automation and technology we bring into the work environment the more we will need these power skills to really make these things work together for customers. And in COVID, 
what we're seeing is we need people who can do complex decision making, right? Um, and complex problem solving. We need people who can deal with ambiguity. We need people who have learning agility, um, who demonstrate some level of, resist, of resilience. So all of those things are power skills. And uh, as I talk to employees, I talk about really honing in on those power skills. You have to continue to focus on transactional skills, but you have to know that the shelf life for those can be very short, where the power skills will take you through most of your career. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, Given all of that and given how much has happened just in the last few months, uh, what have, where are some bright spots that you've seen where people have really been innovative and kind of applied some of this stuff to to deal with current events and where and then of course I'm curious to uh, hear from you where you see this going and how people can implement this. Yeah, so uh, we actually did a webinar this morning with the Ford Motor Com- Company and PepsiCo. They're both clients of ours, talking about virtual internships. So imagine COVID hits, students have already gotten their letters in January and February saying you're gonna be in an internship and now you realize none of these people can come on your campus. And many companies then canceled their internship programs. And what um, PepsiCo and the Ford Motor Company, MasterCard and Citibank, those are the, the four that I'm very aware of, they got really creative. And in about two weeks, they developed a a virtual remote internship program and let all of those students who had been given offers actually participate in a program. In most cases, the program was made a little bit shorter, but they still paid them what they would have paid them normally. they used Degreed in a lot of different ways. They used, Degreed was kind of the common theme for all of these companies, but they used Degreed to help onboard um, their, their interns. They used Degreed for their interns to create groups and solve real business cases and innovation challenges. Um, they used Degreed to help their interns build skills. And they were able to use technology to not only help people build skills, but to also create that social connection and community. Now, all of that didn't happen in Degreed, but they found remote and virtual technologies to bring that together. And um, Today in our webinar, we had both the interns because I said, I want to hear the real tea from the interns, not just mm-hmm. the professionals. Uh, <laughs> we had the interns and the, profession, the HR professionals on. And what was surprising to the HR professionals was that many of the managers said they felt that the interns that participated in the remote internship program actually built more sustainable skills than those who actually did in-person programs. And that's because they had time to really focus and learn and work on a skill. Um, The manager had to be much more conscious about checking in with that intern. So they were getting more support. 
And the interns had to rely on each other in a different way. So it ended up being really, really successful. And I thought that was very innovative. Yeah, my impression would be just you got me thinking about that. A bunch of interns show up in person under normal conditions. And I wonder if anybody's really got a plan or you just hang out and kind <laughs> of it sounds like if you're going to keep this alive, there sounds like there is a far more deliberate approach to like, oh, we actually have to create some structure here. And it sounds like in this case, the remote version of it had more structure and had a little more thoughtful approach to it that yielded way better results. Yeah. And even, you know, security concerns. So most companies prior to COVID, if you said, oh, just mail the computer and any other technology to a new hire, before they joined the company, security would be like, no, that's not gonna happen. Um, and with everyone going to remote work, that no longer was a no decision. It was like, okay, we figured out how to do it and keep our assets safe. Um, so I think what we're also seeing with remote work, companies are questioning the processes that they've used to make decisions and learning that they actually can make decisions a lot quicker than they normally have. And so that'll be interesting to see if that sustains itself over time. Well, a friend of mine said, we just did 50 years of innovation in about five months. It's true. It's and true. necessity being the mother of invention. So it's a particular interest area of mine is now that we've demonstrated it, we've demonstrated in in a crisis. Yeah but it has shifted the bar for what kind of change people are capable of. So I wonder if for you, now if we start to look at, well, there was a normal pace of what we thought it would take to have an organization be more adaptable, what can we, get, what can we take from this period of time and implement strategically versus reactively? Yeah, I, I think if I were still in a corporate setting, um, I would want to not only think about, I think skills is the big thing everyone has to be thinking about, but I would wanna think about how do I continue to experiment with a number of different techniques and find out which one rises to the top um, so that I'm staying ahead of the game. Um, I think what learning professionals are going to really have to focus on is how do you truly bring that human factor into learning? We know how to do this, but it's hard doing this collectively, right? And feeling like we're still in the same classroom. And there are technologies that allow us to do that, but we haven't always leaned on using those in a learning environment. More importantly though, I think learning skills is really about doing the work, being able to apply that knowledge and make mistakes and apply it in time. And so organizations are going to have to think about how they, there's a new term, learning in the flow of work, which is, you know, really they're talking about performance support tools. When I need something, it pops up. But to me, learning in the flow of work is almost like having an apprenticeship, right? That I can truly 
have some knowledge and then get on a project and use that knowledge and get um, success points. I don't like to use feedback, success points um, so that I can continue to build on that. You have to have a certain amount of patience, which means you have to understand that the investment in the development will pay off um, because it's gonna take a little bit longer, but you'll get more stickiness. Um, and that's what companies do not do well yet is learning, applied learning um, that you can put a little bit of structure around, but that becomes organic to that organization. Yeah, because what you're really talking about, I deal with this around cognitive diversity, which is a pretty nuanced term for most organizations right now, but you have to get buy-in from leadership first so that it's intrinsically valuable. But then there's a whole communications process to the workforce about recontextualizing how they work. Yeah. Teams would actually work now knowing, okay, we are. I'm going to take my skill set, use that, but along the way I'm actually developing a few other skill sets, which is a different paradigm for working because yeah. you're working and learning. And so how do you get people functioning and having the patience and knowing that you're adding drops to different buckets along the way? That seems like uh, uh, some of the challenge resides more in the communications of it. Yeah, there's a cultural challenge, right? Because managers like to hold on to their um, high performers. And in this type of environment, the employee doesn't necessarily belong to anyone. They're going in and out of different teams based on their skills, right? Um, the So... It's learning a new way of working. It's a different mindset for managers or leaders. Um, it's having teams that are very dispersed and being okay with that and knowing how to do the handoffs, but also taking advantage of geographical differences. Because if I can hand off something to you when I go to sleep and I wake up in the morning, I can get it back. That's just beautiful because you're just right. continuing to learn. Yeah. So I think it's cultural. I think there's an organizational piece of it. And I think there's a mindset piece of it that has to be in place. And does this often, as you're in these conversations, does that shift then how we measure, so say the the manager's performance? Yeah. What are, what are they being measured against? So I, of course they'd want to hold on to those top performers, but how would you have to change the measurements to maximize this kind of learning? Yeah, I I think you have to start measuring how effective managers or leaders are in developing others. So how much time are they giving to the people on their team to participate in learning? How much time are they spending with their um, team, providing them with success tips and coaching? How much um, rotation and movement are you seeing coming in and out of the team, which means that they're constantly creating this environment of learning. I think you have to expect them to do something different and you have to measure them differently. But, uh, and we won't get into this because I, I just uh, wrote a blog that was released last week. The whole notion of performance management, I think is extremely flawed. 
looking backwards on someone's performance does not motivate them to perform better. But I talk about doing pre-performance um, previews of performance where you're really focused on the skills that people have and need to continue to grow and the skills they need to acquire and how you're going to set up the rest of their year in terms of their projects, in terms of their learning, in terms of who they have contacts with to help them build those skills. That to me is how you enable performance instead of how you rate performance, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. No, critiquing and pointing out what didn't work versus actually creating a vision of what there is and empowering them to fill in the gaps. It's a boy. I I wish everybody was doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who's doing that right now, but in my, in Janice's world, that's how it would be done. Well, and I guess the last kind of question is kind of a natural question, which is, you know, Degreed itself has just gone through COVID has been dealing with a bunch of probably unprecedented circumstances. Um, I'm just curious, does that give any kind of uh, new thinking on your end or any preview into what Degreed might look like coming out of COVID that might not have been there beforehand? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, thank goodness, Degreed has actually done very, very well during COVID because people have needed our service, our platform. Um It's putting pressure on us, though, because the more people need us, they come up with new needs. And so innovation has to uh, speed up, right? And we have to look at more use cases that we're playing with while we're going down a certain path. So I think we've become much more agile. I think we've become much more mission focus as an organization. We've become a lot bigger as an organization as well, but we've also become much more excited about the future. Everyone's excited about the future and everyone's excited that we're in a position that we can actually help other people. Um, And so we feel very fortunate and very blessed to, to be employed, but also feel like we're in a position where we can give back to, to others. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak with us today. And I'm really excited to see what happens in the future of Degreed. And and I know it's not like we're the nuts and bolts of the innovation conversation, but it really is the ecosystem and the conditions for it. And I've just been so impressed with what you guys have been doing. So thanks for taking the time out today. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about our workshops or consulting and innovation strategy services, please visit us at evolutionofinnovation.com or email us at hello at evolutionofinnovation.com.